Making News is a podcast about journalism and news literacy in Wisconsin and beyond. This is Making News. I'm Jane Hampton. I used to push back with politicians who would complain about a tweet, and I would just say, well, read the story. You know, the story has all the nuance and everything. And I don't push back anymore because for so many people, it is just about the tweet. Scott Bauer is a correspondent for the Associated Press based in Madison. He covers state government and politics, but also, as he pointed out in our email exchange the other day, courts, floods, murder, and mayhem. Welcome. Thank you for taking time to talk about your work. Great. Wonderful to be here. So first off, a question about the Associated Press. Um, your stories run in a bunch of different publications, so people see your byline in many different places. H- how does the AP work? Yeah, so the AP is a member cooperative, and what that means is really anyone who chooses to, but typically news outlets will pay uh, to get an AP membership. So you're talking newspapers, radio stations, TV stations, um, other content providers, Google websites, you know, news entities that only exist on a website, they will pay a certain amount to get a certain level of AP content. So when I write a story or when someone else in the AP writes a story, um, it will go out to everyone who's an AP member. Nowadays, the public can also access those stories through the AP news app on your phone or on the internet. So the stories can go statewide, worldwide, nationwide on the wire, but obviously once it's out there on the internet, it's there for really anyone to find. Um, Politics is really consumed your time and that of many reporters, but the political push and pull in Wisconsin seems to reflect the national divide and trends. Do you think that's the case? And if so, how has your reporting reflected that? Yeah, and it's a really interesting question, and it's it's one that we uh, reporters often talk about. Uh, well, we did when we used to be able to be together in the same room. Um, I work out of the state capitol in a in a press room in the capitol um, that's shared by reporters from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Wisconsin State Journal, Public Radio has an office nearby. And we often talk about uh, the way things have evolved. Uh, I've, I've been here in Madison since 2006. And prior to that, I worked 10 years in Lincoln, Nebraska, covering State House there. And really, as you mentioned, things had been, you know, even before I got here, um, things had been pretty divided in Wisconsin. You know, there has a long history of, of stark political division. But really, um, of course, with Act 10 in 2011 and Scott Walker, things got taken to a whole new level. And we've seen recently here uh, with our Republican controlled legislature and a Democratic governor, similar trends that you've seen in Washington, um, in Congress, and the level of discourse and the way things break down along party lines has has become even more um, pronounced, I would say, over the past five years or so. And so you really it's very difficult for often to find a way through that, uh, I think, for the for the people in, in power, um, because we really are living in a very uh, hyper-partisan environment. Even when it comes, of course, in Wisconsin to COVID-19, how has COVID-19 changed your reporting, you know, as well as your day-to-day work? Well, yeah, I mean, it's been dramatically affected by it. 
we're, we're here talking today on February 5th, which is basically a year, give or take a few days from when Wisconsin had their first positive case. And I remember at the time going to a news conference in Madison in a packed room with 20, 25 people to hear the mayor and the public health officials talk about this one positive case that had been identified in Madison. And it's shocking that a year later to be in that, you know, to be in a, a small room with 25 people shoulder to shoulder would just be really unth unthinkable right now. And so we went through a month of, you know, gradually escalating cases and a lot of talk in the press room about what are we going to do. And then uh, that that first week in March, when things really kind of ratcheted up toward the end of that week. And I, I distinctly remember leaving the press room on Friday with my laptop and jokingly saying to people, well, I'll see you in June. Like I knew I wasn't going to come in on Monday. I knew I was going to work from home that Monday. And I said, I'll see you in June, kind of gallows humor. And everybody laughed and was like, well, no, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. And, you know, it may not even be until June, 2021, if then, you know, so to take a step back, all the reporters working out of the Capitol have been working remotely. Um, no one's going in. Ha no one had been going in. Occasionally people go in for short periods of time and work out of the press room um, one person at a time. We don't have the multiple outlets working out of there. I'm working from home. Um, my colleagues are working from home. Some, some of them have other offices they can go into that are isolated, not in the Capitol. So they'll be working out of there. And so what that has meant from the reporting angle is, you know, you always did a lot of things by phone. Now you're doing everything by phone. You're doing everything via Zoom. Um, you're watching events over Wisconsin Eye or other broadcast entities to cover, like covering the floor of the legislature through Wisconsin Eye as opposed to being there. Um, we have floor access typically we're not doing that. You know, I, I could be there if I wanted to be, I'm choosing not to right now. So it's a lot of, it's a lot of workarounds to what would normally be just grabbing somebody in the hallway and saying, what do you, what, what's going on with X, Y, or Z. Now, it, now it's texting, now it's calling, now it's emailing to get, get a hold of those same people who can help tell you what, what's going on. Do you miss the press room in the Capitol? Um, you know, I think that's something a lot of people don't understand about being a journalist that especially covering a state house, it can be really fun. Right. Yeah. And that that is the biggest, for me personally, the biggest professional thing I'm missing is being in that environment. Um, you know, we're we're all competitive with one another, but we're also friends. You know, many of us are are friends outside of work and even though it's a competitive environment, we also help each other out. Um, covering a state house is very complicated. It's very fast moving. It can be very difficult at times. So it's nice to be in a room with other reporters and just say, what does this bill do? You know, what is going on here? And then you just kind of have a conversation like, well, that's, it means this or that or whatever. And it's not like we're in there giving stories away. We're just talking collaboratively to understand what, what's going on, you know, to help us all be better. So we miss that. And, you know, there's that camaraderie is not there. It's definitely not the same with a text message here or there. And, and just doing the job is, is harder and more difficult, not physically being present in the Capitol. 
So that political polarization in Wisconsin extends to the response to COVID-19. I mean, it's everywhere. So when trust in media is so low, especially among Republicans, how do you navigate that? I think the distrust of the media is nothing new, right? That has been there as long as I've ever been a reporter. What What's new and different is maybe how that's weaponized and how social media is used um, to kind of attack the messenger more effectively and more prominently than it, than it could have been before. Um, so really, I mean, whether it's COVID-19 or any other topic, what, what I try to do is just to be the best reporter I can be, be as fair as possible to both sides, to all sides, no matter how many sides there may be, to listen to complaints when they come in and, you know, and to stand your ground. If, if someone is accusing you of being biased and it's, and it's not a fair criticism, you know, stand up to them and, and show them why. Often when a reporter is called out for a certain story or whatever it is, the person calling them out knows that they're being disingenuous. The politician will know that what they're saying is not a fair criticism, but they're doing it to deflect from the news. It's a typical blame the messenger kind of tactic that we see from um, politicians from the top, the, the, the highest ranking politician in the land to the county supervisor. It's a very, it's a very well-worn tactic. So how do you decide when to stand your ground and when to ignore stuff? You know, it's obviously a case by case. I personally tend to ignore the, the vast bulk of it. Um, if it's, you know, for example, if it's just some random person on Twitter um, commenting, you know, I, I'm not going to waste my time reacting to that. If it's a very valuable source and someone I've known for a long time who contacts me directly or who who calls me out on social media by name, you know, I will I will make an effort, obviously, to to make things right with that person and, and to talk with them. Um, and and the same goes true for you know if the governor's angry and one of his people reaches out to me and says this story's bogus, you know, we will have a conversation about that. Um, so at that level, I will certainly interact. But if it's just you know, if I spend all my time dealing with people who are angry on Twitter, that's all I would ever do. So it's it's not really worth my time. You have more than 26,000 followers on Twitter. How does that expand the impact of your reporting beyond the news organizations that carry your stories? Yeah, Twitter, um, you know, double-edged sword, I think. Um, I actually find a, a lot of value in Twitter, maybe more than other reporters would would say they find. I think it's been a it's been invaluable during COVID in terms of another way to make sure you know what the heck is going on out there, um, because you can. So many people are are communicating via Twitter, both politicians and other reporters, um, that it, it becomes kind of a virtual press room where you see what people are reporting on and what you may not have known about or what you knew about but didn't you know know everything about. Kind of like a tip service almost. Um, it's also a way that many, many politicians communicate. Um, so you need to be following it for that reason. And I just feel like in terms of getting the news out, which is your question, it, it, it doesn't surprise me anymore, but it did for a long time surprise me how many people would say, I saw that on Twitter. I follow you on Twitter. You're, you, are my, um, you are where I get my news via Twitter. I used to push back with politicians who would complain about a tweet. And I would just say, well, read the story. You know, the story has all the nuance and everything. And I don't even, I don't push back anymore because for so many people, it is just about the tweet. I mean, they really do care how a tweet 
is phrased and formed even sometimes more than what the story itself says. So what that does for me is it just means I have to spend more time being intentional with what I tweet, knowing that for a lot of people, that is their source of news. So what about the criticism that Twitter becomes an echo chamber for journalists and people in power and people with a lot more privilege than the average American? It's true. I mean, it's absolutely true. I mean, Twitter is, I don't have the the metrics on it, but it, I, you know, it is very heavily dominated by journalists, politicians, you know, people in power, all of that. Um, so the echo chamber criticism, I think, is very valid. And, and to take a step back, you know, my top priority and my number one priority is filing for the wire, is filing stories for the AP. Um, I don't break news on Twitter. Everything's got to be on the wire before I will tweet about it. Um, and so my, you know, my heart and soul and my my vast majority of my effort goes into writing those stories that are then available to anyone who has them appear in their newspaper, has them read on TV at night, has them read on the radio in the morning, um, or finds it themselves on, you know, online. So for me personally, I see Twitter as kind of an adjunct to what I, to my main job, but it's just another way um, to get information out there. And, and anecdotally, like I say, a lot of people have, I think a lot of people read the tweets and don't actually go then and click on the story and read the full story, unfortunately. So you've been with the Associated Press your whole career. Um, and in that time, you know, of course, there's this vast change in social media that you're describing. Um, but local news and journalism in general has just been slammed. And so how do you see the impact or um, challenges to your reporting now uh, as opposed to the way it used to be when more people were reading local newspapers. Yeah, it's tough. And and I did spend, but my first two years out of college were at a um, daily newspaper in Illinois, family-owned um, afternoon publishing, kind of a dinosaur-type newspaper. And it was a great experience. And, um, it, you know, it saddens me. It saddens every journalist, I think, and many, many, many non-journalists to see the struggles that the newspapers are going through the appetite for news has never been higher. Uh, certain national publications like the New York Times have done a fantastic job in getting digital memberships to their websites. I think local newspapers have had a more difficult time figuring out how, how to make that work financially, clearly, which I think is a shame because you know, I, I subscribe to the Wisconsin State Journal. I get the print edition every day and I read that every morning and when I'm around other people who don't get the paper, they're asking me things and wondering about things that have all been reported on, but they, they're just not aware of it. And I, I just say, I'm like, well, did you read the paper today? Did you see it in the paper? You know, subscribe to your local newspaper. And so I, it, it, it saddens me that there is this kind of information gulf. Um, the news is out there, kind of like the X-Files, you know, the truth is out there. The news is out there. You just have to go find it and, and too many people aren't, aren't taking that effort, making that effort. Yeah. So what are people missing if they're not following you <laughs> or another? No, I'm, I mean it. Like what, what are they, what are they missing as far as understanding the world around them if they're not following you or one of your colleagues, say in the state house? I mean, I'm sure there are whole classes taught on this, maybe at UWM, um, but it's, you know, it's the self-selection of the news. It's, your newsfeed becomes what you are interested in. And then all you end up reading about are stories about whatever it is. 
So what are people missing out on? You know, they're missing out on what's going on in their local school district that they should care about, what's going on in their local community that may affect them or that they may care about, what's happening in the crime or in the, the safety of their community, uh, you know, what's happening with elections and politically, locally, state, nationally. You know, the national political news, we have 24-hour cable stations, many of them devoted to that around the clock. Um, far fewer spending any time on state politics, let alone uh, city council, county government, you know, the things that actually really affect your daily life in a way more than what the president may or may not do. Um, school board, obviously, is a, is a huge one. So all of those things are covered by your local news outlets that if you're not engaged with that, you're, you're missing it. So given all these trends in journalism, what would you tell 22-year-old Scott about going into journalism as a career right now? Yeah, I mean, for your, for your students, I would, it, um, I would say there's a couple things. You know, one is the good news is there's, as I mentioned before, there's a tremendous appetite for news. And because of the world we live in, um, for good and for bad, there are a lot of different places to go uh, to work where you can, you can put that news out. Uh, when I graduated from college, your choice was pretty much a daily newspaper, uh, TV station, radio station. You know, the internet was was just kind of beginning. I graduated in 1994. So it, certainly there was no like, you know, web-based news outlet that you could go work for. Nowadays, there's any number of outlets that have some kind of news function. They're more esoteric maybe and more partisan than they ever were. But, but there are a lot of opportunities. The um, caution I would say is, you know, it's not easy. Um, you probably have to move. You may have to live somewhere you don't wanna live uh, for a while. And, you know, it's really harder and harder to find news outlets that are truly nonpartisan um, and that, that don't outwardly or um, secretly have an agenda. So- What do you mean secretly? Well, there are a lot of there are a lot of outlets, um, web-based outlets that pretend to be nonpartisan that are truly not, um, and sometimes those are more coy about it than others. So, you know, I would just I, I always caution young people, especially journalists, if if you take that route earlier in your career, you're closing a lot of doors later on. If you aspire to work for NPR, for example, or the Associated Press, um, I can't speak for NPR, but but I would say that if you come in with five years working for a hyperpartisan entity, that's not going to be looked favorably upon by the Associated Press, for sure. And it's really tough for a younger person, especially because they have they feel very strongly about certain things, very strongly about certain issues, and they may want to go work for someone that's advocating for what they care about, um, that writes news stories, but writes them from that perspective. And that can be very, I can understand why that would be very attractive um, to somebody coming out of college, but that's just not, you know, it's not the world I live in and that's not the world that a lot of news organizations work in. Well, what about that argument that many younger journalists at high profile publications are making is that objectivity is not possible and we as journalists should quit talking about it and think more about transparency, say. Right, and I, I hear that argument. I think um, what I would say about objectivity is obviously everyone has opinions. 
there, there's no way, no, there's no human who doesn't have certain feelings about whatever it is they're covering. Um, and to claim that you don't, or to claim that you don't have certain personal biases is just, I mean, that's unrealistic. What I would say um, is you can still be a fair uh, reporter with having those um, personal conflicts with what you report. Um, and, and the way you're judged by that is, is the work you produce. And so, you know, I would push back a little bit on that argument and say, you can produce objective, fair journalism that, that doesn't have an agenda or that doesn't show your personal feeling on a story. If you, if you do it well, if you take the time to be fair to both sides or to all sides and being fair, doesn't mean a he said, she said type thing, which there's a lot of pushback on that. It's about, you know, calling somebody out when they need to be called out, but also being fair uh, when there's, you know, there's nuance. Every, every story has shades of gray. It's, we don't live in a black and white world. And um, there's great resources out there that Pointer Institute and others have, have kind of measured news outlets based on this kind of rubric of how they do their job. And, and I often send that graphic along to people to help them understand help to see where news organizations fall on the chart of being fair or not. And the AP is right, right up there. Um, National public radio is right up there. And there are others that are, that are, you know, out there that doing this work, I think in a, in a fair and objective way. And maybe you can find creativity by being a music reviewer on the side. (laughs) I, I, I do do a dabble in that occasionally. And that's very fun. Did you kind of earn that, uh, opportunity by, uh, by getting the everyday work done and then pitching the idea of doing something that you're passionate about? Yeah, the AP is kind of cool in that, um, and it's been this way for 20 some years where they do music reviews. And I I think initially I just asked someone, how do you pick who does these reviews? And they're like, you're in the mix. You know, it's basically like, if you raise your hand, we'll we'll take you kind of thing. And then you have to, you know, show that you can actually do it. Um, and so I've gotten to, to choose every month. They put out a list of here are some things that are coming out. Would you be interested in reviewing any of these? And so I've done that for now for 20 some years. And um, off of that, I've, I've had a chance to do some features stories and some music related pieces that um, have been completely different from my day job, but have been super cool. And I've gotten to interview Neil Young a couple times um, on the phone and, and I interviewed Pete Seeger a couple times and uh, got some great stuff from him and talked to him about Act 10 when that was going on because for the younger people who may not know he was oh, wow a big, yeah localizing Pete Seeger That's yeah great. localizing Pete Seeger because I had interviewed him for a music story about a record he, he made when he was 89 years old and the record company when I set it up they just gave me his home phone number they said just call Pete you know and so I called and his wife answered and she's like, well, he's out fixing the dishwasher in the, in the <laughs> shed. I thought, well, that's perfect. So I did that story and then act 10 happened and everybody was singing these songs that Pete Seeger would sing. And, you know, it was all about unions and it was kind of like right in his wheelhouse. And I just thought, you know, so many stories were being written during that time about every possible angle of act 10. So I thought, I'm just going to call Pete Seeger and see what he thinks about it. You know, <laughs> so I did. And I wrote a story about you know, Pete Seeger and Act 10, and it was, you know, was kind of cool. And actually, and so when he died, um, somebody else, you know, wrote his obituary, but the very, the, the kicker quote, the last quote was one that I had gotten from him because I'd asked him in my interview what, what, I, what he thought his legacy would be. And so he commented on that, and that ended up being the, the last quote in his obit. So I thought that was pretty cool. 
Well, Scott Bauer, thank you for sharing your stories. Wonderful to be here and good luck to all your students and they can uh, feel free to follow me on Twitter and send me a message and I'd be happy to offer any advice or suggestions for them. Making News is supported by the Digital Humanities Lab at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee.